I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book uh, in the New Testament. You'll find it on page 1044 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you're a guest with us today, we've been working through this section of uh, Matthew's Gospel, and we are in chapter 16, which is the probably the most important chapter in the Gospel. It is what ties the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew with the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And for a few weeks, we've been thinking about what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is teaching us his foundational principles of what it means to be one of his followers. And so we're in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin reading in verse 21. And I want to speak for a few minutes again this morning on this subject, the cost of discipleship. Matthew chapter 16. And this is what the Word of God says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not sending your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. James Montgomery Boyce said there is a fatal defect in the life of Christ's church, and that defect is a lack of true discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are many today who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, but there are very few who are actually surrendering and following Jesus Christ, as the Bible describes in Matthew chapter 16. In these verses, Jesus is giving us his definition of what it means to be one of his followers. It doesn't matter what the world says it means to be a follower of Jesus. It doesn't matter what a pastor says it means to be a follower of Jesus. What matters more than anything else is what Jesus Christ himself says it means to be one of his followers. And in this passage of scripture, he defines for us exactly what it means to be one of his disciples. And at the heart of his definition is the reality that it costs something to know and follow 
Jesus Christ. That according to Jesus, there is no such thing as easy believism. That you can receive Christ as your Savior and have the assurance of heaven and salvation and yet do what you want to do and not follow him. That some other time in your life, you can make him your Lord. And Jesus dismisses that false ideology in this passage of Scripture. And he makes it clear that to know him as Savior is to know him as Lord. That those cannot be separated. And so in this passage of Scripture, Jesus teaches us the cost of discipleship. He teaches us what it means to be one of his genuine followers. And the reality is there is no true, genuine Christianity apart from what Jesus describes in this passage of Scripture. And so we've seen the path of discipleship in verses 21 to 23. And we've seen the pictures of discipleship in verse 24. And this morning we're going to pick up in verse 25 and Lord willing finish the passage and the first thing I want you to see is the paradox of discipleship in verse 25. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is the word for that is used three times in this passage of Scripture. It is used at the beginning of verse 25, it is used at the beginning of verse 26, and it is used at the beginning of verse 27. And the repeated uses of this word for give us compelling reasons why we should obey Jesus' statements in verse 24. That if anyone would follow Jesus, he needs to deny himself he needs to take up his cross, and he needs to follow Jesus. And why should he do that? Because whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for the sake of Christ will actually find it. Warren Wiersbe said that in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is giving us a severe warning that once we've spent our lives, we can never buy them back. And so we should be careful how we live and spend our lives. You will also notice, in addition to the repeated use of the word for in this passage, that Jesus uses the word life in verse 25. He uses the word soul in verse 26. And he used the word self in verse 24 and all three of these words are synonymous they represent the real us and so Jesus says in verse 25 in this paradox whoever would save his life the real you will lose it and Jesus is saying that whoever lives their life in such a way to save it, to protect their earthly physical life, to gain and achieve ease and comfort and acceptance by the world, in the end, those people will actually lose their lives. 
It's a reminder to all of us this morning, friends, that none of us can keep our lives and that none of us are ultimately in control of our lives. And haven't the events of this past year proven that to you? That you are not in control? That you can take all the precautions that you want for your earthly physical existence, but in the end, you cannot fully keep yourself? That whoever would live their life in such a way to protect it and to save it and to keep their existence, in the end, Jesus says, you'll actually lose it. You'll forfeit it. Jim Elliot understood this principle of Jesus, the great missionary. His most famous statement ever is simply this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And he gave his life for Christ. And he achieved and received a life that he will never lose. But notice Jesus isn't finished with this paradox in verse 25. He goes on and he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so it's an opposite statement. And with this statement, Jesus is saying that if you're willing to give up your earthly life, if you're willing to give up your worldly existence, if you're willing to suffer, if you're willing to die if necessary for Christ and for his sake, in the end, you will actually find real, true life. In Mark's gospel, in his account of this passage of scripture, he describes this paradoxical statement from Jesus this way in Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. It's a reminder to all of us this morning that we must lose and be willing to lose the life that we can never keep. And with these paradoxical statements, Jesus is teaching all of us this morning that true discipleship, True following him is being willing to pay whatever price that faithfulness to him demands. It may mean this morning, friends, that you suffer for Christ and for the gospel. It may mean that you die in martyrdom for Christ and for the gospel. It may mean that you endure physical exhaustion in illness for Christ. And for the gospel. But at the end of all of it, Jesus says, no matter what the cost is, no matter how great it is, if you're going to be one of my followers, you must willingly abandon your safety, your security, your personal resources, your health, your friends, your job, and even your very worldly physical life for me and for the gospel. Does that sound like Christianity in the 21st century to you? That the only way you're actually going to find your life in all of its fullness is to actually lose your life and give it away completely to God? The principle that Jesus is giving us is that when we give our lives away to Christ, we actually, in the end, Find our life. 
And most of us live the exact opposite. We give all of ourselves to find our life in our earthly physical existence and give Christ the leftovers. And Jesus says it's the exact opposite. You surrender everything to me. You give everything to me. And in the end, you'll actually find life in existence. It's the exchange life, friends. It's what Paul described in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the life that Christ is teaching, that it means to be one of his disciples. In the book of Philippians that we've just finished reading together as a church family, you'll notice this morning from the reading that Paul referred to Epaphroditus again. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, he had a long statement in verses 25 to 30 about Epaphroditus and how God was using him in the life of the church at Philippi. And he was using him to advance the kingdom of God. And at the end of that passage, in verse number 30, this is what Paul describes about Epaphroditus. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He almost died for the gospel. He almost died for Christ and for his cause. And when the average Christian hears that today, they would say, oh, Epaphroditus, you're doing too much. You're giving too much of yourself. You need to back off. You need to be not so passionate about God and the things of his kingdom. You need to keep it in balance and keep it per in perspective. And Jesus says if you live your life that way, if you live your life to save it, to save your physical existence, you'll lose it. You'll lose it. That you need to be willing to give all. Here's the paradox. If you live for yourself, friends, you're going to die. But if you live for Christ, you'll live. You'll really live. You'll have real life. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To live your days, your moments, your years, in the mundane, in the extraordinary, to live all of those moments in complete surrender and devotion to Christ, to live for the gospel, to live for the kingdom, to live for Christ, to live for others, to lose your life in abandonment for Christ in his purposes. It's the exact opposite of what Satan tells you. Satan promises us glory and in the end he gives suffering. And God promises suffering in the beginning and in the end he gives us glory. Which do you think is better? Glory in the beginning, suffering in the end, or suffering in the beginning and glory in the end? Whoever would 
lose his life for the sake of Christ will find it. And I'll tell you what this passage does. I'll tell you what this verse does. It demands a choice from every single person who hears it. And it's not popular to say that this morning. We're told that you can't demand anything from anyone anymore. And I just want to set the record straight on that when Jesus Christ demands things from you. The Word of God demands things from us. And this passage confronts us with a choice. We can live for ourselves. We can live for the temporary. We can live for this world and lose it all in the end. Or we can live for the world to come and actually gain life in the end. There's only two choices. There's only two ways to live. Live for this world that is fading away and will pass away or live for the world that is to come that will never fade away, never pass away. Oh, if you live for yourself, if you try to save your life, if you try to save your existence, you'll lose it. But if you'll just surrender it all and be willing to give all for Christ, you'll find true life. You'll really live. Well, we've seen the path of discipleship and the picture of discipleship and the paradox of discipleship. In verse 26, we see the prophet of discipleship. Notice at the beginning of verse 26, the word for again. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? In this verse, Jesus asks two questions that further emphasizes the value of a soul and what it means to be one of his disciples. Notice question one. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? With this question, Jesus is saying, what would it be like to somehow possess the entire world? Of what lasting benefit would that be in your life if you forfeited your soul to gain all of that? And the answer to the question is you would simply be a walking dead man or woman who temporarily owned everything and would lose it all in the end. Jesus talked about this principle over and over in his teachings throughout the Gospels. In one of his most famous sections of teaching, Matthew chapter 13, when he gave his whole list of parables, he talked about those who followed him with a superficial commitment. And this is what he said about them in Matthew chapter 13 in verse 22. He said, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Listen to what he says next. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world, choke the word, and they prove unfruitful. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, living for your life, trying to save your life, unfruitful, forfeit your soul. Paul in some of the greatest warnings to pastors and to churches that have been given in the Word of God, told Timothy that the desire for earthly things would ensnare and trap people. 
And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, he says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now listen to verse 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In verse 9, he says the consuming desires of the world ensnare people and trap them. In verse 10, he says it leads to a craving in their life, and their craving for what is temporary replaces their pursuit of God, and then in the end, they wander away from God. But he's not finished. In this same passage, in verses 17 to 19, he says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. The uncertainty of riches. A false foundation on which to live and build your life. And Jesus says, what profit is it if you gain everything that this world has to offer? What profit is it, sir, if you're the best provider in the world for your family and at the end of all of it, you lose your soul? What have you gained? What have you done to your family? You've sent them on the road that leads to hell. What profit to gain it all and in, in the end lose the most valuable thing about you, your soul, forever? He's not finished. Look at question two. Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is asking Every single person in this room this morning, what could possibly be worth having in this life if to gain it you lose eternal life? What could be so worth losing that? The answer? Nothing. Look at the language of the text. What will he give in return for his soul? Do you know what this text is saying? It means that once a man or a woman loses their real life, once they lose their soul for living for the wrong world and living for the wrong things, there is not a price they can pay to get it back. You could have it all, and you still wouldn't have enough to get your soul back. That's what Jesus is saying. One of my mentors, Dr. Johnny Hunt, said this, Satan will offer you whatever you want in this life to damn your soul. He'll offer it all to you. 
for you to lose your soul. James Montgomery Boy said, The devil can give you a paltry imitation of heaven now, heaven on earth, but you will experience hell hereafter. But on the other hand, following Jesus now, though it requires self-denial and difficult moments, it will lead to heaven forever. Jesus asked these two questions of you and of me, friends, because he knew what it was like to be tempted in this way. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, in the midst of the temptations that Satan gave to Jesus, the Bible says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Don't you see? Don't you see what Jesus is asking? He's saying the devil will show you everything your heart desires. And all it will cost you is your soul. All it will cost you is to worship him instead of God. To gain everything in this world and be without Christ is to be bankrupt forever. But... To abandon it all, to hold it all loosely, to be willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ, it's to gain everything. It's to live forever. It's to be rich. Oh, hear me this morning, friends. Your soul is so valuable, you can't put a price tag on it. Do you know how valuable it is? It is so valuable that the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood and died for your soul. That's how valuable your soul is to God. And in the context of this passage of Scripture, it was Peter who started all of this teaching by trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And Peter didn't understand the cost of what it meant to be one of Christ's followers. But later, after the resurrection, he did. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, he wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, about this very truth that Jesus taught him. It's helpful. It's helpful for you and me living in the 21st century. Listen to what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Why? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Here's my translation of what Peter is saying in this passage of Scripture. Spend the rest of your life living for what matters. Spend the rest of your life living for Christ and for His kingdom. Think about your life and your past. And think about all the things that are in your past that God saved you and rescued you from. And think about how much of your life you've wasted living like that. And Peter's saying, don't you think you've already spent enough of your life living like that? Stop living like that. Live like this. Live for Christ the rest of your life. And when you do that, when you abandon the past and your old life, you'll really live. You'll really live. 
No prophet. No prophet in this world. It's in the world to come. This, this is a demanding passage of Scripture. Those preachers you watch on TV, you know who I'm talking about. You ever heard him teach this passage of Scripture? No. Because this is true Christianity, not what they're peddling. So I just wonder, this is a demanding passage. What are you pursuing that you're trading your soul for? Teenager? What are you so fixated on that you're willing to give your soul for it? Parents, how much do you have to have in your bank account? How much do you have to have in your retirement account? How many desires do you have to fulfill for your kids and lose your soul for it? And lose the soul of your family for it? Why not give them true riches? Why not give them parents that talk to them more about God than about things? Why not spend time reading the Bible with them Instead of giving them gadgets to go off and leave you alone. What are you trading for your soul? Well, there's a path of discipleship. There's pictures of discipleship. There's the paradox of discipleship and the prophet of discipleship. Finally, we see the promise of discipleship in verses 27 and 28. In verse 27, Jesus talks about his return. Look carefully at the text. He says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. The Old Testament contains more than 1,500 prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. And yet, it wasn't clear to the saints of the Old Testament that his coming would be in two separate stages thousands of years apart. The first stage would be characterized by suffering and sacrifice for sin, and the second stage would be characterized by conquest and splendor. When we come to the New Testament, the central focus of the New Testament is on Christ's first coming. But did you know that Christ's second coming in the New Testament is mentioned or alluded to once in every 25 verses? In the New Testament, for around 320 mentions of his return, the Old Testament references to a suffering Messiah and a Redeemer in passages like Isaiah 53 were frequently rationalized away by the Jews or spiritualized to the point of insignificance. And as a result, most of the Jews in Jesus' day we're expecting the Messiah to come once and that when he came, he would establish a kingly rule and reign. And this was Jesus' disciples' problem. 
It's why Peter in this passage says, Jesus, far be it from you that you would go to the cross. You are the Messiah. You are to establish your kingly reign now. They didn't understand what you and I can look back on and see. That Christ came once to suffer and to die. And then he's coming a second time to rule and to reign. And Jesus says of himself in verse 27, do you see it? He is coming again. And throughout the history of the church, the church has referred to his second coming as being imminent. That it could happen at any moment. As the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching you and me that one of the reasons why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him daily, be willing to lose our life to find it, is because he's coming again. And it's imminent. And he could come at any moment. That's why William Barclay said, life is going somewhere, it is going to judgment. And he's absolutely right. It's going to the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 27 that when Jesus says that he's going to come again, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. This was his favorite title beyond any others. This name reflects his humanness and his incarnation, and he fully identifies himself with mankind as one of their own. But it also has rich significance. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, God the Father is referred to as the Ancient of Days. And in this passage, it's a scene where God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sits on his throne of judgment. And after the beast and the Antichrist are destroyed, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and presented himself before him. This is what Daniel records in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And this is what Jesus is teaching and talking about to his disciples. Jesus was teaching them and teaching us that he is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, who Daniel saw come in glory and splendor and power. The one who came with myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. And he came to execute judgment and to rule, and to reign. The disciples were confused. How could the Messiah suffer and die? And so Jesus says, for everyone who follows me, there is suffering and death that leads to glory because I am coming again, and this is where your hope and encouragement is found. If you're a disciple of Christ this morning, there is great hope in the fact that Jesus is coming again. He's coming to rule and reign forever, and you will be under 
his perfect rule and leadership for all eternity. But he's not just coming to rule and reign. Verse 27 says he's coming to reward. Do you see it? And then he'll repay each person. Jesus was speaking in general terms in this passage of Scripture about his second coming and about rewards. And he was pointing out that when he returned, he was bringing rewards with him, rewards for those who belong to them, punishment for those who do not belong to him. Look at what the text says. Do you see it in your Bible? Each person, comprehensive, every single person will be judged. Each person, no one escapes. And what will he do? The text says that he will repay. It has positive connotations and negative connotations. He'll repay his people positively with rewards. He will repay the wicked, those who have denied him, those who have rejected them, the unbelievers, with just punishment and judgment. Listen to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Luke chapter 18, verses 29 to 30. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He is coming to reward. He's coming to reward the righteous, those who know him as their Lord and Savior. He is coming to punish the wicked. John Philip said the Lord Jesus is coming again. He's coming in glory. He's coming with the host of heaven. He's coming to reward. He's coming to reign. So let us take up the cross and be rewarded one day with a crown. He's coming. Do you believe that? I'm not making things up this morning, friends. It's in black and white right in front of you. He's coming again. Whether you believe it or not. And in verse 27, he says he'll review according to what he has done. It reminds us that we are accountable to God. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12 that each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's why the psalmist said you will render to a man according to his work. The Bible teaches it like this, friends. Those who know Christ as their Savior, they will be judged for their works, what they've done in their body, whether good or bad. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that their works will be tested by fire, by the pure fire of the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that which is worthless in their works will burn up like wood, hay, and straw. And that which is worth something in their works will survive the fire as gold, silver, and precious stones. And each will receive their praise and their reward from God. As a believer, you will be held accountable for what you've done with what God has given you. And I believe on that day you'll see what your life was like and what it could have been like in your service to Christ. And that's why this passage takes on so much meaning for a believer. 
Quit trying to save your earthly life and be sold out for Christ. On that day, you'll wish you were. On that day, you'll wish that you had given more, that you had sacrificed more, that you were willing to do more when you see Christ face to face. What will it profit you if you miss out on that day? It changes the whole meaning when you understand you will give an account of this life to Christ. It's a challenge to live soberly, sacrificially, being willing to suffer for Christ. Unbeliever, oh, please hear this pastor's heart this morning. You too will be judged, but it will be a different judgment than that of believers. The Bible says that you will stand at the great white throne judgment. And this is how the Bible describes what will happen in that place on that day in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You will stand before the holiness of God, your maker, your creator, and you will give an account of your life. And John says the books will be opened on that day. Listen to me, non-Christian. Listen to me, unbeliever. Those books, they'll record your every word, your every thought, your every deed, your every motive. All those things that you try to cover up, all those things that you try to hide, they'll all be recorded in those books. And you will be judged according to what is written in those books. And you will find in that moment that apart from Christ, your works will condemn you because they'll never be good enough. Never be good enough. That's why God gave His Son because His work was sufficient for you. He worked so you wouldn't have to try to work to be right with God. Because in the end, your works will never be good enough. But when you look to Christ, and you look to His cross, and you see that as He hung on that cross and as He shed His blood, that all of your sin, all of those deeds that are recorded in those books were placed upon Him. That He died and suffered for your wrong thoughts, for your sinful desires, for your unrighteous anger, for your immorality, for all the things that you did. He died and suffered for you so that you wouldn't have to. 
And he was put in a tomb and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven and he's coming back. And this is where your victory is found. Can't you see, unbeliever, can't you see, non-Christian, that you don't have to stand before the great white throne judgment and deal with the holy wrath of a holy God for your works? That you can turn to Christ and all of his goodness will be applied to your life so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees you in your sin. He sees Christ. He sees his son. And when he sees his son, do you know what he sees? Perfection. And when you're in Christ, he can look at you and see you as if you've never sinned before because his son never sinned. But listen to me, non-Christian. There's coming a day when it would be too late to turn to Christ. There's coming a day when Jesus will return and you will stand before the great white throne judgment. And you will give an account when those books are open. And you might even remember a service like this where you were clearly pointed to Christ and you rejected him. Oh, would you not reject him today? Would you see Christ and all that he's done for you? And would you see him personally, that he died personally for you? And would you turn from your sin today and turn to Christ and believe in him and trust him and believe that when you ask him to forgive you, he will. And believe that if you unite with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection, when you die, you will live forever with him in glory. That is the gospel, friend. And if you will believe and receive, he'll save. This is discipleship. It's a cross. It's self-denial. It's suffering. It's losing your life. To gain. Our world wants a domesticated Jesus that gives us all of our desires and makes us feel good and have warm fuzzies. And Jesus says, What I desire is a cost to following me. Will you pay the cost? Let's pray.